0: Thank you. That's very kind. I was thinking earlier, I was glad there's some activity between when Jane Anderson spoke and me, because he would be a hard act to follow. (laughs) I have a confession to make that early this morning I had this kind of perverse idea that I had to show up this morning late. You know, like well into the song service, barely before the worship service, just to give Zach a thrill. When I was speaking more often when I was younger in the university, travel, and I'd take my kids with me and say, Dad, why are we getting there so early? I said, Because when you're the guest speaker and you get there late, you make the deacons really nervous, okay? Somebody's got a cover for you and they don't know who that is. When we were younger and living in uh, Cedarville, Ohio, I was a young professor about Zach's age now, and we lived next door to a uh, retired pastor and his wife uh, they had met and married later in life and they were um, wonderful people retired at that point as I said Uh, he had a really deep stentorian kind of voice you know and uh, he would come next door and talk to me and he'd play with our kids and what he said you know Rex uh, a man should always be ready to do three things at, at any given time preach pray or die preach pray or die a man should be able to do that in other words You call them on to pray, you can stand up and pray. If God calls you home, you're ready to go. And Zach, if I didn't show up, you're on. (laughs) So you might have a, you know, uh, sermon tucked in the back of your Bible there. Have sermon, we'll travel. But um, really, consider it a privilege to be here. As Zach said last week, to stand in this pulpit, any pulpit, but to stand here in our home church and speak is, is a wonderful opportunity and privilege, and I enjoy it. Hope most of all, of all that you get something from it, from the Word of God, not from me. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about peace recently. And because of that, I thought, well, I'll bring that together and maybe uh, make that part of the presentation here this morning. Share a few things I think that I've learned that I think are meaningful and cause some memories. I remember when we, our kids were young and Sarah and I were blessed with four children, a, a daughter... And three boys, and they're in their 30s and 40s now, of course, have their own families. And uh, as they were growing up, the daughter's the oldest, and so we always called her the Queen Bee because she was bigger, faster, stronger, smarter than the boys. But of course, they caught up with her in all those categories, except maybe smarter. But nevertheless, um, that was was fun. And being kids, they would, from time to time, get kind of loud, you know, kind of raucous. And this went on from grade school on into college, you know, when they have their friends over. We were those parents that always liked it when they brought their friends to our house rather than the other way around because we know what they're doing and where they are. So, but, I mean, we had to fill the refrigerator over and over again to feed all those young men. But nevertheless, uh, uh, we liked that. But they get loud and I'd get out and i you know, in the middle of them trying to calm them down. And I'd say, hey, now, you know, just sit around and talk about world peace. You know, like, world peace? You know what? I'd sit around and talk about, well, eventually, of course, that became kind of a family joke. Uh, sitting around talking, sitting around talking about world peace, but... And if you've followed that idea elsewhere, of course, uh, it's kind of become sort of a meme for beauty queens that, you know, they're in the contest and they're asked some question and oh, they just, what about world peace? You know, this kind of a thing. And, and then the idea, of course, is the beauty queen has a vacuous mind. There's nothing there, airhead. But some of them, of course, are very smart. Uh, very, very smart. But world peace is something, uh, wow, think about that. Think about the fact that, and I guess what got me started was the Israel-Hamas thing on October 7th. That's what really got my attention, to think more about what peace means. We'll talk more about that in a moment or two. But peace on a kind of social, political, macro level, but probably where most of us care is right here. Peace on a personal level. And uh, there's all kinds of things that enter into our lives, whether hurts or harms or trials or tribulations... Again, we'll reference these things, but uh, it can really upset our sense of purpose, our sense of well-being, our sense of peace. We can get ourselves into all kinds of anxieties and depressions and so on. So again, peace be with you, and in, in that particular phrase, we'll start with, with that, if we can get my little cool tool here to work. What am I doing wrong? Well, go ahead and advance the slide. and. There we go, No. There we go, okay. Uh, that phrase, peace be with you, is actually a phrase that Jesus himself spoke. And what's really interesting about it is if you set the, the kind of scene for this, in this particular verse, there's four verses where it's referenced in the New Testament. But the first two times, it's when he's talking to the apostles or the disciples, and it's the actual day of his resurrection. And if you get into... ...John chapter 20, and you look at that and you think, okay, earlier in the morning, Mary Magdalene has gone to... ...and there's some other women mentioned in the other accounts too, has gone to the tomb to do whatever she she was going to do. And she finds the tomb, uh, the stone rolled away, she finds it empty, she finds uh, the cloth, she's scared to death. She runs back down off that big hill into Jerusalem somewhere. She must have known where they were and found the apostles and, and told them what she had found they think oh my goodness and they run out okay and peter and john are the ones that get there the count says john is probably younger doesn't say that but he is probably younger he 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 races more quickly runs quick more quickly he gets there but then he got to go in and but peter you know peter ah. so peter gets there finally charges right in and sees the empty tomb now what do they do then when they understand that Jesus isn't there well it says on the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders Jesus came and stood among them and said peace be with you and he did that again later he repeated that comment and then that other verse there the 20 you know uh, verse 26 uh, it so happens that the person we call doubting Thomas wasn't there and Jesus, in his uh, concern, his compassion, he comes back a week later. It's about a week later, eight days later. He appears to his disciples again with Thomas there. Again, first thing he says is, peace be with you. And that's, of course, when he revealed himself to doubting Thomas, and as we call him now. And Thomas said, I don't know, you're, you're the Lord and Savior. And, of course, he expressed his faith and commitment. So it's interesting that he does this, that Jesus Speaks this phrase, peace be with you. That's the first thing out of his mouth. Because he understands they're afraid. And you think, well, these are eleven men. Why didn't they think, okay, if they didn't believe in the resurrection, they didn't quite comprehend that. Why weren't they out searching the environment of Jerusalem looking for who stole the body? They didn't. Or if they believed in the resurrection, why were they locking themselves behind a closed door? But they were human beings. And to give them a little bit of space to recognize that the spirit of God, because that's talked about in this passage, isn't yet indwelling believers as he does today. In fact, Jesus communicates that to them. And Pentecost comes later for all believers. But they don't have that sort of comfort. And they're afraid. They're just human beings. They are afraid. They don't have peace. And Jesus knew that. And he walked in and said, peace be with you. Now, you probably are aware that phrase of peace be with you, has become something of a a greeting. There are various Christian traditions or denominations that will regularly greet one another, peace be with you. And some that will do that in their services on a regular basis. Not all do that. Some Baptist churches have done that. Most don't. Nothing wrong with it either way. Uh, But it's because of that, that focus on peace. The Greek, Irian, or Irene, I'll just say Irene, I didn't know this because I'm not a Greek scholar until I looked at this in the last week or so. It means peace, quietness, rest. Uh, if your name is Irene, uh, it means peace or quietness, rest, like that. All the derivatives of that Greek word, particularly in the name, means that. And I thought, well, that's good. They don't want to hang around with me because my three names mean king and warlike and big spear. <laughs> but at any rate, um, Hebrew Hebrew for peace is shalom. That has become uh, a greeting among Jewish believers or Jewish people, I should say in general, who greet each other with the idea of Shalom. And again, it means wholeness, peace of mind, God's rest, comfort It's something. It's all encompassing. It means more than the absence of violence. We'll come back to that. It means more than the absence of war. But this idea of peace be with you is, is picked up by other groups, um, Muslims, Islam, Muslims greet one another with the phrase, peace be with you. If I can remember it, that uh, uh, went, went right out of my head. <laughs> I had it in my head to say it in Arabic, but it's out of my head. But anyway, they greet each other with peace be with you, and they'll say it back to one another. Uh, that's just part of their expression. So the idea of peace and the need for it is something, as I said, that it's something. if you live in this world... You're going to experience circumstances that unsettle you. You're going to experience circumstances in this world that we live in that is beyond our comprehension. I've been kind of shocked, if that's the right word, at the reaction internationally and especially in the United States, especially on university campuses, as what's going on with the Israel-Hamas war. These open calls for genocide. I mean, open calls. It's amazing to me. And I'm thinking, don't these folks, and we talked about this in Sunday school class a couple of weeks ago, don't these folks even realize the, the number of Jewish Americans that there are? Uh, the vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris, her husband, Doug Emhoff, is Jewish. Okay? Uh, Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, is Jewish. Steven Spielberg, if you haven't figured it out, is Jewish. You know, you can get down a huge list of Jewish notables in American society who have blessed American society with their various kinds of contributions and talent, and uh, they're calling for the open genocide of Jews? I, I, I just, it's mind-boggling to me that I would see that in my country and of what's taking place. And it's unsettling to think about those kinds of things. And in the process of studying uh, this and thinking about uh, peace, I came across once again, remember it in the past, Billy Graham's book called Peace with God. And uh, I got into it, ordered a copy because I hadn't read it in years, and I got about two-thirds of the way through it again. Uh, this book was published in 1953, year after I was born, a few months after I was born. It's still selling 70 years later. It's sold millions of copies. It's been translated in 30-some languages. It's probably his bestseller of all of the 30-some books that he wrote. And it was written when he was 35 years old, four years deep into this ministry that we know of as Billy Graham. Before that, he was a young pastor for a number of years, and then got started doing what he did. Eventually, as, a, as an evangelist, speaking in 185 countries. Before God called him home at 99 and a half, but this book, "Peace with God," that he wrote as a very, very young man, is uh, still selling. As I said, and it's still quite powerful. And why is that? Because people are hungry. People are unsettled. People are they they want to know how to have some kind of, of, of well, peace, some kind of wholeness, some kind of completeness, some kind of relaxation, the ability. And they're looking everywhere other than God for it. They look to narcotics, you know, the illegal drugs. They look to prescription drugs, opioids, all that kind of thing happening in the United States. Or other forms of substance or substance abuse so, so often. Uh, they look for this in in uh, uh, relationships and go through how many relationships or marriages and whatever, and that doesn't bring it to them. They look for it in uh, money or success or fame or power. You know, you go down the list. It's the same as what he wrote about in 1953, and it's the same as Paul, the Apostle Paul wrote about 2,000 years ago. But there's one quote from this book that I particularly like. There's a lot in that book I like. It says, God's peace can be in your heart, Right now, whatever the circumstances, whatever the call, whatever the duty, whatever the price, whatever the sacrifice, his strength will be your strength in your hour of need. It's all yours and it's free. Love that quote. I love the faith of that quote. I love the optimism and hope of that quote. It's one of the reasons this book is still selling because there's a lot of observations in here like that. Recommend the book if you want to get get it on any anywhere that sell books. But nevertheless, they think about the fact that peace is something we're looking for. Uh, I was watching uh, television this week, and I even turned on the radio. I don't know why, but I turned on the radio on the way to church this morning and picked it up again. And there's an ad for California psychics. Okay? Have you seen this? Uh, California psychics, the joy of certainty. That's their tagline, the joy of certainty. And then the thing that really kind of attracted my attention, got my attention, was they said that if you're not satisfied and if you don't experience something that's life changing, it's free. If it's not life changing, it's free. Now, I don't know how you demonstrate that later and get your money back, but it's a dollar a minute introductory. It's, I looked it up. It's $4.50 a minute if you really get into it if you really want top tier psychics, I don't know what that means. It's 6.50 a minute, and you can go as high as 8.50 a minute, I guess if you really wanna be sure, and get these folks uh, in order to find out certainty, and therefore experience some kind of peace about your tomorrow and your future. If it's not life-changing, it's free. And then I thought about the scripture. I thought about Billy Graham's book. I thought about what we're talking about here. Hey, it is life-changing. As Billy said, it's all yours, and it's free. God doesn't charge you out of the gate to share with you his love and forgiveness and his embrace and his blessing. There's no cost here. It's all a blessing and a benefit. Unmerited favor. Grace is called because we don't deserve it. It's given to us if we seek him and we seek to know him. California psychics gotta pay up front, okay? Gotta pay up front. And if, you know, if it's not life-changing, you can go back and argue, try to get your dollar back. But that kind of peace is what the world talks about. So as you think about this, uh, I got into looking at this a different way. Remember, you know, you've seen this RIP, rest in peace. This is an interesting thing. Rest in peace in the English phrase goes back to the Latin And I didn't try to memorize the Latin, but it's one of those rare circumstances where the Latin is actually, those words are R-I-P also. And uh, you can go into the catacombs in Rome, go down underneath and walk around and see the Christian graves that are there in the catacombs. And this Latin phrase meaning rest in peace or rest in God's peace is written on the Christian graves. It goes back that far. It got going more in probably the 4th or 5th century. Of course, according to historians, it began popping up on gravestones in Europe, of course, in the 4th or 5th century. Where it really took off is in the United States in the 17th, 18th, and 19th century. It still happens today, but not as much. But in our country's history, rest in peace. If you go farther east and you go into the graveyards out east where they use epitaphs more often than they did later on, you'll see rest in peace or RIP written on gravestones. So people have this idea. Is it wrong? Well, um, sometimes we use the euphemism of sleep for death because it feels better. It's a little easier to get our, wrong, our, our arms around it. Uh, even when Lazarus died and they came and told the Lord, he said, oh, he sleepeth. Yeah, you know, Lord, you know, come on, you're, you're missing the point here. He's a little more than sleepeth. And uh, they talked into King James back then. So uh, at any rate, uh, he, of course, raised Lazarus from the dead. But when you think about this, rest in peace, the, there is a peace in the sense that when a person passes, the cares and the trials and the turmoil and the tribulation of this world are no more. Uh, there's verses in Proverbs and Psalms that talks about on that very day, a plan sees, okay? Those things are over for that person that is now deceased. They don't have to worry or think about those things anymore. They can't. Whether they're in heaven or whether they're in hell. They aren't going to think about that. So in a sense, theologically or from a biblical perspective, it's not I don't think it's a bad thing, rest in peace. But I do think it misses part of the point. So you know, on Facebook, every once in a while you find out that someone has passed away and you want to express your condolence or your empathy or sympathy, and I've done that many times, and I write back to them, and I finally develop kind of a little little thing I want to say, and I'll say, look, I'm very sorry to hear about the passing of this loved one, and if I know, and usually I do, that this person is a, was a believer, I say, you know, when a, a beloved saint like this passes, uh, I like to think about the biblical theology that they're not gone, they're simply absent in scripture it says absent from the body what present with the lord you're not gone like roadkill okay you're not gone like uh, you know we love our dogs and we want to think they're going to be in heaven and maybe they will but uh it doesn't say that in scripture so we're not going to embrace that uh but we're not animals or human beings and there is an eternity on the other side there is this thing called the afterlife and your conscious spirit continues There are believers, some sorts of traditions, that it's called soul sleep. They believe that when a person dies, that uh, their their soul, their spirit, also is like unconscious until the time of the resurrection and the rapture. I don't believe that. Again, we talked about that in our Sunday school class there a couple of weeks or three weeks ago. I I don't think you can demonstrate that from scripture. I think you can demonstrate the opposite. That there is a consciousness, absolutely, body, present with the Lord. So I, I kind of, for the fun of it, developed a different RIP. And I'll talk about, I like to think about the biblical theology that, that you know, your, your dad, your mom, your loved one is not just resting in peace. They're rejoicing in peace. Because they are. Along with my dad who went to heaven in April 2018. So dad's up there rejoicing with, in peace. Along with Moses and, you know, a few people like that. ...and they're having a good time with the Lord. And they're conscious. And there's a fellowship and an interaction. I think that's an unbelievably blessed truth... ...from Christian biblical theology... ...for those of us that, who are left behind... ...remember that phrase... ...for a period of time that we can understand. There's loss. There's, there's grieving on our part. We won't see them for a while. Okay, my mom misses my dad... Okay, obviously, but she knows where he is and she looks in faith and in peace, amazing peace to understand she's going to join him someday and they're all going to be there someday in terms of the end of the story as you read about what happens in scripture. So what is this thing called peace? Rest in peace, yes, but what is this thing called peace? Is it simply the absence of conflict? And that's what really got me going with the Hamas-Israel kind of war of people calling for an immediate ceasefire. And I'm not going to go very deep on this because we already talked about it and it's another subject. But I, I struggle with that. I understand their heart. And I have Christian friends, Christian friends in the Middle East who work for Sat-7 who have friends in Gaza that they've lost already uh that you know there aren't hamas but there are civilians that got caught up in this conflict i don't like that phrase collateral damage you know that's a military term but you're talking about human beings here okay not a garbage heap uh, i also don't understand though if you if you just lay down your arms and you say okay now we have peace when the perpetrators the bad guys the enemy in this case their stated purpose is to annihilate you. Their stated purpose is to wipe you from the face of the earth, not just you and your kids and your nation, everything about you. How do you sit down and talk peace with a group like that? I'd like to ask some of our American leaders that when they call for, okay, I get it, I, I want peace too, <laughs> okay? But I, I really do believe that, that one, of the, one of the biblical, divine, charges for government is coercive power and the right use of course of course of power to establish justice and to protect and to preserve and to allow people to live because sin exists and god knows that now that's enough of that but there we've had some of that before in history back in 1938 there was a guy named neville chamberlain he was prime minister of england he went to munich uh he made a speech he interacted with hitler and there was a number of concessions including give them Czechoslovakia that were made to Hitler at that time and he came back and said peace in our time we have peace in our time and for a while he was a bit of a hero in the UK because it looked like okay we've avoided going to war with Hitler that there are people though like Winston Churchill being one of them that didn't quite think that Uh, and it was about nine months later ten months later that Hitler invaded Poland and what we know of as World War II started So giving concessions to the enemy, that idea of peace in our time has become associated with kind of an an accommodationist approach where you just sort of give them everything you want and hope hope for the best. Um, Again, we understand it, pacifists, I've read pacifists, I respect them, I respect their thinking, their values, I've known a couple of people who are pacifists, I can't go there because sin, there's still sin, and we'll see that here in a moment. So peace at any price. There are people in the world today, as there was in Jeremiah's time, saying, peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. There are people who, in Jeremiah's time, did not like Jeremiah's message. They didn't want to hear about judgment. They didn't want to change their their, their behaviors. They didn't want to think about the fact that Babylon could indeed come in and just wipe them out and take them away, which is what later happened. And Jeremiah, as the prophet of God, was warning them that, but they were saying, no, no, peace, peace. And they rejected Jeremiah, rejected his message. There's plenty of people doing that today in various forms. I won't get into the big illustrations. But a lot of people that don't believe in Christ and Christianity, that don't believe in, in the church, that don't believe in what God has to say, they're rejecting that. And they're saying and offering all kinds of other methods and means, and we'll look at some of that, uh, for Peace. Uh, if you've lived very long, you've seen some of these symbols. They all represent peace at one time or another. If you lived through the '60s or grew up there as I did, you see that first one up there—the peace symbol—that got started in the anti-nuke movement in, in the UK back when. Uh, uh, it's been used now for all kinds of things. Uh, that bird up there on the upper right is a sorry-looking dove. I don't—it's supposed to be a dove. It looks like a fat robin, but I—I just—it's supposed to be a dove. Okay. Uh, the victory sign, there's pictures of Winston Churchill walking through London during the war, holding up his two fingers, meaning victory. That kind of morphed into the 60s. It became peace symbol, peace sign, peace out, you know. And uh, how or why that happened, but it's there. It, it's not evil. The ribbon, you know, tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. Remember that song by Tony Orlando and Don became kind of a cultural moment. That was a yellow ribbon. That was the idea that dates, by the way, to the Civil War of, of coming home. That's how it got started. Of a, a tie yellow cloth or yellow hankies or a yellow ribbons something around the tree, and I'll know not to get off the carriage because it's been three years and I know you found somebody else. That's you know what's ripping up the soldier as he's going home, uh, and then to see the ribbons and to jump off and you know be reunited. Uh, that happened too. But the idea of peace, uh, these called awareness ribbons. Um, now they've been used for everything you can think of and every kind of color you can think of. There's nothing wrong with that. It becomes aware. Usually, if it means peace, it's kind of a dark pink, but uh, peace ribbons have been they put in all kinds of colors. Uh, the one in the middle of that little looks like a branch. That's an olive branch. And as you think about that, uh, of course, that has more of a biblical connection. Symbolism we'll say more about in the next slide. And then shaking hands. You know where shaking hands got started? Back in the early medieval period. And why did men shake hands? Because if they're shaking hands, they don't have a weapon in their hand. And that was the way that you signified... That hey, I'm safe. You know, there's not a spear or a pike or sword or something in my hand. Pre-guns. Uh, let's shake hands. So, Zach, we'll shake your hands later. I don't have a I don't have a spear. Uh, these, you know, these are these are symbols of the world's peace. That's just another look at the olive branch. The olive branch, as it comes, uh, there's 13 leaves there, interestingly enough. The olive branch, that's the great seal of the United States. See the olive branch down there on the, on the right. I guess we're looking at it on the left. But, Uh, there's 13 leaves. Why? 13 original colonies. And it's the idea that uh, this has been used since 1782, uh, that we're about peace. But we're also about defending peace. That's what the arrows, 13 of them on the other side, are are about. So you can get into the symbolism there. Again, so this idea of communicating peace and what is peace. Remember, Reagan used to talk about peace through strength. You know, it's another philosophy, a different point of view. This is more of a biblical uh, influence I think it goes back to uh, the story of Noah. Noah puts out a raven. The raven doesn't come back, you know, toward the end of the flood. Then he puts out a, a, a dove It doesn't have the strength of a raven, and she comes back. I don't know why I said she. She, she comes back. And, uh, and then he, he sends her out again a week later. She comes back with an olive leaf, an olive leaf, just a leaf in her beak. And he keeps her another seven days, sends her out, shouldn't come back. And then now, Noah now knows that the waters have receded. It's safe to get off of the ark. And so a lot of people think that, of course, in the New Testament, uh, the Holy Spirit is represented in the form of a dove uh, with Jesus' baptism, whatnot. And then they're putting the two together the olive, uh, the olive leaves, olive branches, olive, are all over the Middle East and all over the ancient world. And they were always a symbol, of course, of fertility and of blessing and of well being. Because if your olives are growing, then you've probably got enough food to feed your family. So peace on earth. And it looks like a Christmas card. But uh, back to the symbol here. Uh, And again, this peace symbol has been used for all all manner of moral and immoral purposes and colors. And uh, so I just put it up there. But if you read the text, you'll recognize that. Uh, In 1969, a guy named John Lennon wrote a song uh, called Give Peace a Chance. It was an anti-war song, uh, Vietnam War, And the phrase, give peace a chance, the refrain kind of caught on. But if you look it up and read the lyrics, you think this guy must have been high when he wrote this because it is gibberish, it makes no sense. The lyrics are just gobbledygook. That's 1969, but the phrase, give peace a chance, caught on. Uh, Two years later, 1971, Lennon wrote what really has become his legacy song, Imagine. And it's been covered by more than 200 artists. Uh, Every time something dreadful happens, Uh, the secular world trots out this song because it has a catchy tune and people like it. It's sort of uh, religious without being religious, you know? Uh, There are certain Christmas songs like that. I won't get into that. But imagine, he says, imagine this is linen. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell. No hell. Uh, Above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Just live for today. There's no consequences, no consequences no connection, no tomorrow, that this is what peace is about. Live with it. No heaven, no hell. And Matt, next verse. There's no countries. Isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. No religion, too. And so you, have, you imagine this sort of secular state, this secular world. Imagine all the people living life in peace. I wouldn't sing it. Uh, that's Lenin. Again, the, the catchy tune. He's imagining peace will happen in this sort of secularized state where we don't have heaven, we don't have hell, religious considerations, we don't have countries, we don't have religion at all, now we'll have peace. Now, if you look at, and there are people who say that uh, uh, religion is a source of most of the wars in history. That's inaccurate. Certainly religion has been a source of some wars there have been religious wars. There have been people killed in religious wars. But the number of people killed in religious wars is infinitesimal to what has been killed uh, by secular, godless regimes. And all you've got to look at is the 20th century, you know, from whence I come. I've been living two centuries. Uh, you look back in the 20th century, and there was a thing called Nazi fascism. A guy named Hitler. And before he was killed, before he took his own life, you know, brave man that he was, uh, there are estimates of 45 to 60 million people. We all know 6 million Jews, but the total deaths involved in World War II because of his megalomania and of his godless philosophy, 45 to 60 million. Overlapping that and in the 20th century, a guy named Stalin, you know, the, the successor of Vladimir Lenin and the early Bolsheviks who became communists and turned Soviet Union, Russia, into communism. The estimates with him is 60 to 75 million people that he killed through outright war or through planned famines. It's one of the reasons Ukrainians kind of hate the Russians, because Stalin just kind of circled them one day and just let them starve to death. There's a whole story about that. Uh, And then there was a guy named Mao, also overlapping in that time frame, who in the 1940s and into the 50s, who is, again, estimated, you see all kind of numbers, uh, in China, again, in the same bracket, 60 to 70 million people, back to that one man. Why? And all of them are representing what Lenin is envisioning will bring peace. Secular, godless, no religion, you know, no expectations, no afterlife, nothing but the here and now. So you have the opportunity for status dictatorial powers to do whatever they want to do, and that's exactly what they did. And they killed people in doing it. So it's a sad story, and, and that you know, this gets floated yet today, uh, from lots of places, including the UN. So then you have Jesus, the Prince of peace. And that was our, our key verse. Uh, for us for unto us, a child is born, it's Christmas, right? To us, a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders and he'll be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Jesus is the prince of peace. Now, he's coming to us and he's offering himself in peace. Why? Because we have what theologians call a relational dilemma. As human beings, going back to Adam, we're born in sin. We are totally depraved. That doesn't mean that you've done every kind of depravity there is known to man. I haven't either, but I'm still in my heart born totally to pray. The heart is deceitful and wicked who can know it, Jeremiah 17, 9. There's none righteous, no, not one. And there's all kinds of scripture, and Billy Graham really talks a lot about those in the first half of his book, that as a sinner in need of grace, there's nothing we can do to earn our way to salvation. There's nothing we can do to fix ourselves. There's all kinds of today self-motivated self-therapy, self-philosophies, including the psychics, that all you gotta do is look inside yourself and just decide to be a better person. Trust your heart. Well, hey, my heart's not very trustworthy. How about yours. I may trust yours, but not mine. Uh, trusting our heart, that's where sin resides. We have this relational dilemma. Scripture says the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. It's it's impossible for us to fix ourselves in terms of our relationship, peace with God, even if we wanted to because sin exists. That's what John Lennon missed. Sin exists. You can have all that that he imagined and sin's still in people's hearts. You're not going to have peace. You're not going to have it. So it looks at this in terms of this relational dilemma. And then therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you want peace with God, the pathway is through the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want peace on earth, the pathway is through the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to understand what's going on in the world today, is understand that these aren't just political, social, economic problems. These are spiritual problems. And virtually everything you read about online or in the news that comes to you or however you get your information, you can track it back to human beings making sinful choices based on greed or desire for power or whatever else the motivation that comes from the human heart they're sin problems so we spend a lot of time trying to develop political solutions for what actually are spiritual problems and that can happen in our own personal lives as well but the point is there is hope you know uh, years ago when i did um i wrote a book on legalized commercial gambling years ago probably been 25 years and as a result of that, when gambling was first just becoming a big deal, I did a lot of radio interviews, including on Christian radio, Janet Parshall and all these different people. She's very good, by the way. And uh, you get on there, and they would say, uh, well, what about sin? You know, What about gambling? Is gambling, uh, you know, it's just a disease, because that's what it was beginning to be defined as. It's uh, some kind of social problem. And I said, well, you know, it's a social problem. It can take on addictive kind of influence in terms of our lives, because we get... Really overcome by what we've committed ourselves to, but it gets back to our heart. It gets back, and I called it the sin, which some Christians don't agree with, by the way. And uh, and I was somehow sometimes I was challenged by that, challenged by people uh, on there. They call in and say, "Well, you know, you call it a sin. That's rather rather judgmental, rather harsh." But uh, but I tell you, it's like this: if you if you think that the gambling, just using that example, is something, or the source of it is something other than sin. There's no remedies. There's no, there's no way to, to fix it. There's nothing that we've found that can help address the problem. But if indeed something in your life and you identify it, the root of it is, is sin, is your sin. You know what? That sounds awful and ugly and dark, and it is, but there's a remedy. There's hope. There's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. There's empowerment and enablement through the Spirit of God to overcome that. I can't overcome it, but the Spirit of God can overcome it. I watched a film this week that was... Produced by Christian people, and it was about four individuals that really got hurt and harmed in their lives in different ways, and they struggled through all of this. Oh, thanks! Struggled through all of this, and um, toward the end of it, they're, they're going to thank you. They're going to react and try to uh, respond, and really, and they want to respond with revenge against the people who had hurt them, including maybe take them out. You know, four young people that kind of got together in a strange way. And, uh, and then there's you know, too, too much time to talk about the plot, but uh, an old man who was there, and the old man said, you know, I know exactly what you're going through because I've had people hurt me, etc. but I realized that I couldn't, I couldn't respond that way, and uh, there is a remedy. And they're like, what, what is the remedy? And he said, forgiveness. And they laughed at him like, you know, right, we're going to forgive the people that did this to us, our various problems. And he went on and talked about forgiveness, and he wasn't quoting scripture. And finally he walked out and he said, you just have to find in yourself, and this is where I got off the train, you have to just find in yourself the strength to overcome your desire for revenge. And the strength you need for forgiveness is greater than the strength you need for revenge. And he walked out. And then the film ended with a quote from Mahatma Gandhi. Nothing wrong with Gandhi's quote, but it basically it was saying the same thing. Look in yourself and fix yourself. And I think, okay, well, what about that verse that says, the mind is governed by the flesh is hostile to God? What about that comment, you know, nor cannot submit, nor can it do so? I can't decide. So I take a drink. But I can't decide to, to just get up tomorrow morning and everything's going to be hunky-dory, as my grandpa used to say. You can make those efforts... You might improve, you might change something, but longer term, there is no fundamental change in the source of the problem in your heart. So when Christ comes along, God comes along, we talk about being born again, and Billy Graham does a lot with that, as you might imagine. By the way, I heard Billy Graham speak once in my life. I was about 17, we got on a church bus, drove all the way to Cleveland, Ohio, Cleveland Old Municipal Stadium. He spoke on John (laughs) 3.16. That's hilarious. All the verses in scripture. The one time I heard him spoke on John 3.16. But I got to hear him and I got to watch people respond. It was an amazing thing to see people uh, respond to that message. God had clearly put his hand on the map. But you can't just up and decide and change that. But Graham talks about that biblical theology again that uh, when we're reborn it's regeneration. It's not a renovation of our old self. It's a putting off the old self and putting on the new that God gives us. It's rebirth. Regeneration is all about. It's something new. So the new desire for forgiveness as opposed to revenge comes from a different source. It comes from God, not me. It's now in me, but it comes from God. And if you have struggles in your life and you're looking for peace... Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give it to you as the world gives. Because the world's saying you can fix yourself. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. That God has something to say about what kind of peace. And we'll go through these quickly. There's like, I think, six of these. First of all, our peace that God has to offer is not dependent on the world or others. Others are always going to fail you. You know how I know? Because I'm one of the others, and I'm going to fail you. you know, others are always going to fail you. The person you love the most on earth, are gonna, they're going to fail you. Okay? Why? Because they're a human being. They don't want to, but they will. And Jesus is not that. Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. David knew that. David went back to the promises and the providence of God. David trusts the, the Lord to make the changes... And to bring peace as his refuge. Peace in other relationships. Now, may the God of peace, who through the blood of eternal covenant, brought back the dead of our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. He's doing the equipping, not me. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. So if you're struggling with relationships, which probably all of us are, you have a family? You're struggling with relationships. You know, look it up in the dictionary. It says that right there. Family, struggle with relationship. Is, is this a given? Why? Because we're all human beings. Okay? We all have our issues. Struggling with your kids who are now adults? You know? Uh, God can give you peace about that. What about relationships within the church, the body of Christ, capital C, the universal church, or the local church, meaning this church right here? Do we have relationships? And so I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received, but completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. But it's the Spirit of God that enables us to do that. Over and over again, the source of our problems are sin. The source of our problems is my sin. The, the, the remedy and the hope and the change is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is true not only on a personal level, that's true on a global and world level. I don't know what God's going to do tomorrow or today regarding all of the issues we could talk about going on in the world. But I think it's fascinating to read a 70-year-old book. It's really not old, but read a 70-year-old book and the kinds of illustrations or issues that Dr. Graham referenced back then some of them are gone now. They're not, like, they're not the hot buttons anymore. we got new hot buttons. But it's the same basic problem. That's why the, 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 the basic points of his book have such resonance because they're not his ideas, they're the word of God. So, peace in the midst of tribulation and trial, these two are very closely related. Uh, I'm going to do just that one verse there on Philippians. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, Present your request to God, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's I've told you before, that's my mother's favorite verse. I've heard it all my life. And that verse, uh, the power of that verse, the hope of that verse, that transcends understanding. Other passages, other versions, peace that passes understanding. That the peace God has to give to you, In the face of anxieties and fears and concerns, whatever they may be, hurts in relationships, fear of death, concern about illness, concern about finances, any of the things that cause us discomfort in our spirit, God's not waiting for us to come to him. He's already there offering his support, his blessing, his protection, and his providence. It's there. He will give you and keep you in perfect peace, but our focus needs to be on him. We sang in the song service just now, uh, It Is Well With My Soul. Uh, That song always gets me, okay? You know the story? You know the story, many of you do. Uh, Horatio Spafford, who wrote the lyrics, was a very successful attorney in Chicago in the late 1800s. The Chicago fire in the 1870s wiped out most of his assets, almost bankrupted him. His wife and daughters, they decided to be involved in the D.L. Moody kind of uh, preaching revivals that were going on in, in the U.K. at that time. Something happened, and he put his family on a ship to go to England, and he was going to join them later. The ship gets halfway across the Atlantic and runs into another ship and sinks. So he loses his two daughters. His wife survived. When she gets to England, she sends him a telegram, saved alone. That's all she said. Rips me up. Can you imagine what he went through? <clears throat> and, and the day and age, it wasn't a, you know, get on a plane and six hours later you're there. <laughs> it took a couple of days. It took a while for him to get there. He got on a ship. And when, it, when he got to that place and they told him where is when he wrote those words. Wrote those incredibly powerful words uh, that that song represents. And later P.P. P. Bliss, who was well known as a Christian song uh, writer and whatnot, uh, put the, the music to it. Incredibly powerful when you think about it, and how he trusted the Lord even in the loss of his daughters in a way that he couldn't comprehend, following on the heels of the loss of all of their financial assets and whatnot. It sounds like the book of Job. But like Job, he maintained his faith. And like Job, God took care of it So as you think about these things, you know, peace from eternity. Uh, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. Remember that quote from Billy Graham, doesn't matter what you're facing, uh, God offers you peace and it's free. Okay? It's, it's there. You don't have to walk around unsettled. Now, you don't just, it's not a magic wand. I don't think it's Christian abracadabra. Uh, and I've experienced this a little bit myself where something is really unsettling me. And it takes lots of prayer and lots of focus and lots of Bible reading. But the spirit of God begins to work in your heart. It's not like, whoo, so well, that took care of that. At least not in my experience. But God is there and he's faithful. And the peace of God is available because we serve and worship the prince of peace. Well, the uh, other verse, last verse. I have told you these things that in me you may have peace. And in this world you'll have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. He told the apostles that. He's telling us that. There's another old song that some of you will recognize, the lyrics, uh, about peace, wonderful peace, and the blessings it can be. To me, it's one of the most precious, blessed things about calling yourself a Christian. Is to understand the sovereignty of God. And, and with that, all that that sovereignty represents, and the fact that he's not just way out there, he's right here. And he's walking right with you, even through the valley of the shadow of death. He's right there. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So I pray God's peace for you, and peace be with you. Pastor Zach.